Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. A quick but heated debate this afternoon between Congressional District 6 candidates Lucy McBath, who's the incumbent, and Karen Handel, who previously held the position. It is the president, any president's constitutional right and obligation to move forward with um, a nomination. And then that goes through the Senate process. As things move forward, where is Lucy McBath going to be on packing the courts? I, I honestly have to say the only one that I believe is actually trying to pack the courts is Mitch McConnell and, and uh, President Trump. However, what I will say is I'm very concerned about uh, Judge Barrett's uh, policy agenda. The stretch between Florida, which we talked about last week, and North Carolina, my home state and this season's finale, is an increasingly interesting band of states going purple. The South, which used to feel solidly red, is now in play. Perhaps nowhere does the change feel clearer than in Georgia. Unlike neighboring North Carolina, the Peach State did not swing for Barack Obama in 2008. Georgians voted for Bill Clinton in 1992 and for its own Jimmy Carter in 1976 and 1980. Otherwise, the state hasn't gone blue since 1960. In 2016, Trump won by five points. But in 2020, Georgia has competitive races for president, the Senate, the House, and state government. Today on Women Belong in the House, just a fortnight away from Election Day, we're talking about what's going down in Georgia. Specifically, we're looking at the legacies of 2016 and 2018, the record number of Republican women running nationally for the House this November, and the complicated role of incumbency advantage in one particular race. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan. As of last week, Joe Biden was ahead of Donald Trump in Georgia, according to a Quinnipiac University poll. Last week was the first time that Georgia was put into the blue category, according to 538. It's a very tight race. Here's Tori Taylor, who you may remember from last week. Tori is the co-executive director of Swing Left. You know, I think Georgia has been an emerging swing state for a number of years. You know, with the shifting demographics in the state that have been trending um, towards Democrats, but also, you know, there has been a ton of investment and infrastructure built on the ground with activists and the Democratic Party and the progressive movement in Georgia to get to this point. Um, there's been a ton of work done at the local level with the state party, with a number of progressive organizations in the state. A lot of incredible candidates have been running really tough races in the state for a number of years and revitalized the progressive movement and the excitement and, and energy that we've seen from Democratic voters in the state. So Swing Left is absolutely 
working in Georgia, you know, we're very focused on winning Georgia's 16 electoral college votes for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. There are also two very competitive Senate races in Georgia. And we're also looking at the Georgia State House and the Georgia Senate because we think there's an opportunity in the state legislature there. There are also a number of competitive congressional races in Georgia. One district that exemplifies the changes happening in Georgia is District 6, a suburban area north of Atlanta. District 6 is home to the highest percentage of college graduates and the highest average income in the state. It used to be a solid Republican stronghold. It was the home of Newt Gingrich and Tom Prince. The most hotly contested election of the Trump era so far happens in Georgia. It's a House seat recently vacated by Tom Price, Secretary of Health and Human Services, and before that, held by Newt Gingrich for 20 years. But the district has been on an increasingly purple trajectory. In 2012, Mitt Romney won the area by more than 23 points. In 2016, Trump won it by just a point and a half. In 2018, it went red in terms of the gubernatorial race, but flipped and went blue for the House. Lucy McBath beat Karen Handel by one point to become the district's representative to the U.S. House. On November 3rd, and hopefully even earlier thanks to early voting, voters will choose once again between those candidates. Here's Tori Taylor again. I think this is a good example of what the changing demographics of Georgia really look like in terms of this district has such a heavy suburban population that is the type of suburban population that we're really seeing start to trend away from Republicans um, that have been traditionally Republican voters. But over the last 10 years, we've seen a lot of disillusionment they've had with the Republican Party a lot of disillusionment they've had with Donald Trump and the direction that he's taken this National Republican Party. And, you know, I think a lot of that is motivated by women, a lot of college educated men and women in some of these suburban districts. And then also, you know, I think this goes to show how winning starts with a good candidate. You know, Lucy McBath is a great candidate. For those of you who've been listening since season one, you may remember Lucy McBath's story. For those who haven't, here's a short version. Lucy McBath grew up in Illinois. Her parents were active in the civil rights movement. She was always interested in activism, but didn't think she would ever run for office. For three decades, she was a flight attendant for Delta Airlines. Then in 2012, Lucy's son Jordan was murdered. He was shot and killed in his car for playing loud music. Lucy became an activist determined to help prevent gun violence to save others from her son's fate. She got involved in Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense and Everytown for Gun Safety. Here's Ashanti Golar, president of Emerge America, an organization that trains women to run for office. Ashanti is also the host of The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, another Wonder Media Network podcast that I highly recommend. So for the listeners, I love Congresswoman McBath. She's an Emerge alum. I sat down with her in February of 2017 to talk to her about running for state house at that point. And in February 2018, she called me and she said, I've been praying on it. I know that I should be running for Congress and that's where I can make the change that I want to see. And I said, absolutely do it. And she won her primary. She had a runoff, but she came out of her primary She won her race in the general election by one point, 
And I've just then continued to be in awe of everything that she is able to accomplish. So for the listeners who don't know, uh, the Congresswoman's son is Jordan Davis, who was the young man who was shot and killed for playing loud music in his car. And after that, she became a gun violence prevention activist. And she would go talk to these members of Congress all the time, and they would tell her, we can't do anything. And she knew that wasn't true. So to see her now be colleagues with the people who told her that they couldn't do anything, and she's leading committees that have been able to make change on gun violence prevention is amazing. And I do really want her to win her race. Uh, The president of the NRA actually lives in her district, and they've made her a top priority to take out because, you know, she's very anti-NRA. So, you know, always sending her good vibes, always, you know, want to make sure she's safe. But like Congresswoman Presley says, the people closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And that's how I feel about Congresswoman McBath. Ashanti said the fact that Lucy is in a rematch with her former opponent is expected. So she's running against Karen Handel again, who she beat. And we knew Karen Handel would run again. But I think that she has done an effective job as a member of Congress, paying attention to her district, being there in her district. And that's what the people wanted. And she's raising a ton of money. We know that's important. She has a lot of support. So I'm feeling good about her eking it out. So who is Karen Handel? It's not about what Lucy McBass says. It's about what she does. So if we want to get this economy back on track, if we want to have a community that is safe, where we respect our police officers, if we want to hold China accountable, if we want to have real health care that you... Karen Handel was Georgia's first Republican woman ever elected to Congress. She was elected in 2017 in a special election for the seat, defeating 17 other people vying for the role. Her stint in the House was not her first time in politics. After fleeing from an abusive home as a teenager, Karen worked her way from a typist to an executive with companies including KPMG and Novartis before becoming CEO of the North Fulton Chamber of Commerce. She became deputy chief of staff for Governor Sonny Perdue and was then elected chair of the Fulton County Board of Commissioners. After that, she was elected Georgia's secretary of state. She ran for governor in 2010, but lost the Republican primary. In 2018, Lucy McBath won as part of what was called the Blue Wave. She's one of many Democratic representatives who's now trying to prove that that wave wasn't a temporary blip. On the other side of things, Republican women are working to make the gains in women's representation more bipartisan. In 2018, a record number of women ran for office. That record was made by Democrats. The number of Republican women who ran in 2018 actually declined. In 2020, yet again, a record number of women are running. This time, the record is thanks to the women of the GOP. The same number of Democratic women are running as did two years ago. Many of the Republican women are running against Democratic women. Here's Kelly Dittmar, Associate Professor of Political Science at Rutgers Camden, 
and the Director of Research and Scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. Many of those all-women races are in contests where a Democratic woman flipped a seat or won a seat for the first time in 2018. And so really the narratives to watch are on the Democratic side, can these incumbent women keep the seats they gained in 2018? And on the Republican side, can they do what Democrats did in 2018, which is challenge incumbents successfully in general election races? And so it's interesting to sort of watch like, you know, of course, we're going to be cautious about saying, you know, the Republican women have a great chance to win because incumbents generally do better. But um, we know from 2018 that there are certain political climates in which challengers can do really well. I'm not sure that 2020 is that. I don't think the signs point to that thus far, um, but certainly the top of the ticket will inform that as well. And, and you know, sort of how well and how, po- how well Trump is doing, how popular he is. Um, but yeah, if because there's this record level of all women contests, um, it's possible that even where you see gains in new women and especially new Republican women, uh, what that could mean is just a canceling out in the numbers. Former Republican governor of New Jersey, Christine Whitman, spoke to the fact that many of these races are women running against other women. In some ways, that should be a totally normal occurrence. In others, it may speak to the fact that women incumbents are seen by some as easier to beat. It may also be evidence of a more symbolic desire to look inclusive rather than a substantive desire to really be so. Well, I do think the parties are finally realizing that women are better than 50% of the vote and uh, they better get them in their corner. A number of the women who are running on the Republican side are doing from deep personal convictions, particularly around the issue of abortion. They tend to be further to the right. What's not puzzled me, but frustrated me a bit as I see a number of women running against women. And it seems that the party, not that that's not a good thing, I mean, it's fine to have these choices, but it seems to me more of a calculated response on the part of, it's because it's particularly Republicans who are challenging incumbent Democrat women, and Republican women running against them, that that's to show we have women and uh, to promote women. I mean, they're good candidates out there, believe me, and good Republican women candidates, they're strong Republican women candidates, and they all should be judged on on where they stand on the issues and where you stand versus them. Uh, I'm not saying that at all, but um, it is interesting because I've seen it before where the parties will put women up in elections where they know they're going to lose, but they think now we can say, look, we put a woman up. Isn't that great? Aren't we good? But I also think the parties are beginning to recognize that they cannot go on this way without young people and without women. And they should be thinking that way about minorities too, which they are actually uh, with specific minorities, we're a very diverse country and you need everybody at the table. Why are so many Republican women running this time around? I think it's really important to note that we have tried to reach out to many Republican women running for the House over the past 10 months, and none have been willing to speak for this show. Here's Debbie Walsh. She's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics. 
I think there are a number of things. I think in a in an interesting way, I think the success of Democratic women in 2018 was a bit of an inspiration for Republican women in 2020. I think there were, we heard anecdotally of Republican women in 2018 kind of having been discouraged by people not to run that year because they thought it was going to be a bad year. Turned out it was a bad year to run as a, as a Republican. Um, and if you remember, of the 36 new women that were elected to the U.S. House, 35 of them were Democrats. Uh, so Republican women did not fare well in 2018, but neither did Republicans. So um, I don't think it was because they were women that they didn't fare well. I think that there has been this, this cycle, and I think because of how I mean, it's not just that Republican women didn't beat their records. Republican women lost significant ground in 2018 in the House. I think there's been more effort on the part of outside organizations to recruit Republican women to run. Kelly Dittmar also spoke to that point. There has to be part of this story that credits organizations and individuals who, after 2018, said, we really need to define the problem of women's underrepresentation in the Republican Party, which is severe. I mean, if you recall, Republican women dropped from 23 to just 13 members of the U.S. House, but their representation also dropped across every level uh, of office. Um, and so the party itself needed to be pushed to see this as a problem in need of solution. And so there were individual women in office like Elise Stefanik, um, uh, Susan Brooks, who was the recruitment chair for the uh, NRCC, who again said, yes, this is a problem. We need to do something about it. Uh, outside organizations like Winning for Women and VUPAC, who had already been doing this work, but I think, you know, had a greater space to, to push for their efforts to get more Republican women not only to run, but to be successful in primary elections, which have been a challenge for Republican women. So all of these entities, I think, could come together and have a greater megaphone that I my guess is, you know, women heard that. Uh, and so some of the women who decided to run, um, even if they were not directly recruited by the party or even by these organizations, may have heard the story of Democratic Democratic women's success in 2018, may have been frustrated about the story that was saying, oh, but not for Republicans um, and wanted to really come out and demonstrate and, and contribute to a different storyline this year. So there's some structural uh, reasons why these organizations obviously help women and in the recruitment process. But I also think there was a sort of messaging uh, and narrative that may have changed the dynamics for some of these women in terms of their calculations and decision to run. I asked Brown University professor Wendy Schiller why increased representation is important for the Republican Party and for the country writ large. And uh, having Republican women expands the Republican picture and says, listen, we are the party of women. We're not just um, uh, disparaging of women. So I think they were strategic in it. They funded certain people. They supported certain people. It was smart of them. And they're probably going to end up with an increase in Republican women. It's hard to beat a Democrat in 2020 in the House, but there are a fair number of open seats that they're in contention for that I think they'll be successful. So 
I think that's a really big deal, having the Republican women, because again, even though the, the positioning will change ideologically, the style is different among women. If you look at Lisa Murkowski in the Senate, for example, or Susan Collins, their style is different. And uh, I think when you look at female leadership style, I think you see that they are problem solvers and Republican and Democratic women will be more likely to come together than their male counterparts. That has been the case in the past. Women have been more likely to join hands and work together on issues. It's hard to see that, though, during election time. As we've covered this season, many of the Republican women running down ballot are aligning themselves with the president. That makes a lot of sense for them, because whether they like it or not, their fates are likely tied to his. Here's former Representative Susan Molinari. She's a Republican from New York who served in the House from 1990 to 1997. Yeah, I mean, that's a, like, forget who the president is, right? I mean, that's always a challenge because it will drive people coming to the polls or not. Um, and so that's always a challenge. Um, I remember when I was keynote speaker for Bob Dole, and I was safely entrenched in my little congressional district. I just had a baby. I mean, it was like, you know, everybody had, if you're from Staten Island in Brooklyn, you're like, it's everybody's your aunt and uncle. My percentages went down because Republicans just didn't come out to vote in, in the level that we thought that they would or should. So you have that challenge in terms of do people who are just not, if your base is not super excited, it's going to impact your race too. And it is always the presidential candidate that's going to decide, you know, who excites the base. The president and his fans also hold the purse strings. Here's former Governor Christine Whitman again. I think it is because this president, if you want to run in the Republican Party right now, he owns it financially. Uh, not his money, as we know. He doesn't pay taxes, but he doesn't seem to plow that money that he saved back into anything except debt. As far as his big supporters and after the uh, Citizens United case, big money makes such a difference. They've been able to raise a lot of money. That's where your support will come from if you're running. And with this president, if you're not 1,000% behind him, you don't get anything. I mean, you're in the crosshairs. You're not, you're an enemy. You're not a friend. So if you want to run in this cycle as a Republican woman, you almost have to glom onto Donald Trump. I mean, it depends obviously on your district. It depends on their state, um, what the politics are like there. But for the most part, if you want to get the money and the support of the organization, because almost all these organizations have made their beds with him and they, they're lined down with him and, and you better get in line or you won't get the support. You need to be a credible candidate, put up a credible race. It's not totally clear yet how Trump will affect the tight race in Georgia's 6th District. In the past, Karen Handel has boasted of her record of Trump's support. Recently, Lucy McBath's campaign released an ad highlighting that fact. Karen Handel's campaign took issue with the spot, citing certain inaccuracies. As Donald Trump's numbers look less rosy in certain areas, particularly in highly educated suburbs, it may not serve Handel to be tied too closely with the man at the top of the ticket. Here's Tori Taylor on how sticking too close to Trump could be a problem for candidates running in potential swing districts. It's incredibly problematic, and I think that you're seeing that play out in polls, both statewide um, in some of these swing states and nationally. Um, you know, what Donald Trump's message that, you know, 
is compelling to the most extreme fringes of his party and kind of his base, that is not the mainstream of America. <laughs> and that is not the mainstream in states like Georgia, states like Florida, in a number of these swing states that are kind of at the top of the conversation. And so there is a really big mismatch in terms of, you know, the messages and kind of this lane that Donald Trump operates in, which candidates like Karen Handel and a lot of these other Republican candidates really stick, stay within and what the voters in those districts really want to see. Um, you know, I think these voters want to see stability. They want to see leadership. You know, there are incredibly difficult issues facing our country right now. This global pandemic, you know, it's at times it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight. Um, the economic distress that that has caused in this country, the, dis the general disruption of our daily lives. Um, and so I think a lot of these voters really want to be able to trust that their leaders are going to take this seriously and are going to provide, you know, stable, competent leadership during really turbulent times. And they don't see that from Donald Trump. And it's why, you know, they continue to give him very poor marks on his handling of coronavirus and um, his overall leadership right now. And so, you know, these Republican candidates that are really just tying their wagons to the to Donald Trump's train, I think are making a very big mistake in a, in a lot of these swing districts. On the other hand, these candidates are terrified <laughs> of running away from Donald Trump. You know, this president and his administration and the National Republican Party are also very vindictive to any candidates who step out of line with the president. And so, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to go as far to say that I feel sorry for some of these candidates, but they've got some tough decisions. You know, do they get out of step with the president or do they get back into step with, you know, what voters in their actual districts want and need? And, you know, my opinion here is that if you're going to run for Congress or if you're going to run for any elected office, your first priority should be, you know, representing the people in that community versus, you know, running scared because you think that Donald Trump may like knock out a mean tweet about you if you get out of line. According to 538, when Karen Handel was in office, she voted with Trump 98% of the time, and he has tweeted his support of her. Perhaps for her, there isn't a huge amount of dissonance. One big question I have about Georgia's sixth is, who's the underdog? How does the incumbency advantage work if a past incumbent is now running as a challenger? More on that after the break. I want to tell you about an awesome platform called Bonfire that we've been using at Wonder Media Network. Bonfire.com is the easiest way to design, sell, and order premium shirts all virtually and risk-free, with no out-of-pocket costs. On bonfire.com, you can upload a design or use their templates to promote a fundraiser to your community. They'll take care of printing and shipping the finished product to your buyers. I worked with the Bonfire team to create a Women Belong in the House t-shirt for all of you to campaign in and rock this election season, and I've truly been living in it ever since. Their fundraising feature lets you accept additional donations on top of shirt sales, and you can even send all proceeds directly to your favorite nonprofit. If you're a political campaign, Bonfire is also compliant with all campaign finance laws and can give you additional insight into your supporters, making fundraising nice and hassle-free. Bonfire is trusted by the Women's March, California Women's List, Rock the Vote, and Wonder Media Network. 
you can check out the Women Belong in the House shirt we designed at wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire. Make sure to tag me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan or Wonder Media Network on Instagram at WMN.media and any pictures of you rocking your Women Belong in the House t-shirt. And sign up for Bonfire's awesome platform to use your own platform for good at wondermedianetwork.com slash bonfire. In season one, we established that there's a significant advantage to running as an incumbent. Earlier this season, we talked about how that advantage is exacerbated by the campaigning circumstances caused by COVID-19. But how does that advantage work if the current representative is being challenged by someone who used to have her seat? Here's Debbie Walsh. If you are Lucy McBath in Georgia and you narrowly beat Karen Handel for your House seat, this time around, you are the more vulnerable candidate. So Karen Handel is coming back to take another crack at that seat. And it's that first term when you're a newly elected member of Congress, your district is sort of the most vulnerable. So some of the women who are defending their seats, they're a little bit more vulnerable. But on the Republican side, there's sort of more opportunity in that way, because there are more of these seats that seem to have swung one way or the other. So I think that's where you're seeing some of this pickup, which is why a lot of the women, when we look at the Republican women, where they're running, they're running as challengers against incumbent Democrats, and only a handful of those races are seen as leaning Republican or likely Republicans. Incumbency advantage may start when you first get elected, but it's not all or nothing. Kelly Dittmar spoke to the fact that a freshman representative doesn't have the same kind of staying power as someone who's been in office for decades. The incumbency advantage accumulates over time, but it is still there even in your first term because the the things that contribute to an incumbency advantage, name recognition, donor networks, um, the ability to communicate directly with your constituency over the course of the whole year about all of your accomplishments. All of those things are true even for a first term elected official. And so they do give that person a leg up. But you still have the challenge of, you know, some voters, even after two years, might not still know you very well. Um, You're also under greater scrutiny as a new member sometimes. So, you know, if it wasn't a good two years for what was going on in Congress, and you could argue the last couple of years have been a challenge um, to get things done. Um, And so that can be uh, an added challenge, making the first term incumbents definitely more vulnerable than, you know, a 10 term incumbent. Um, So it's a little bit of both. um, But these women, you know, it is, I would say it is theirs to lose, right? Um, That they come into it with an advantage. One other thing to watch for is that we have previous Uh, Republican women office holders running to regain their seats. So somebody like Karen Handel in Georgia or Claudia Tenney in New York. So that's an interesting dynamic because they have some of that incumbency advantage, even as challengers. Um, And so they, you know, in in our analysis, it's worth thinking about them in a possibly different camp because they come in with the recognition that they were a, a member of Congress, they have some of these connections, and they're really just trying to win back a seat. So many big themes and questions are at play in Georgia's 6th District. Will the blue wave live on? 
Will suburban voters turn away from Trump? Will it even matter in a state widely known for its problems with voter suppression, where early voters have had to wait in line for several hours to cast their ballots? I can't possibly predict what the results will be two weeks from today. I can say that no matter what happens in that particular district, the fact that the Republican Party is investing in women candidates is a good step in the direction of broader representation. Here's Kelly Dittmar on why that matters. So when we talk about representation, on one level, there's always an argument, well, you're just counting beans, right? It's just about numbers, and that doesn't mean anything. And these are critiques that come from folks who say, you know, we shouldn't support affirmative action, we shouldn't support quotas, things like that, because we want the most qualified people for the job. But all the research and all the work that we do demonstrates that those numbers are tied to distinct qualifications. And those qualifications come in the perspective and lived experience that women bring to the job because they have lived their lives as women in the United States. And they more particularly come from even more specific perspectives and experience as a black woman or a Muslim woman or whatever it may be, right? They have this confluence of identities that are going to shape their perspective of the world. And in doing so, shapes their perspective and approach to public policy and ensures that the system that is supposed to be representative of the population actually brings forth perspectives and experiences that haven't otherwise been in these institutions that have been dominated predominantly by white men. When it comes to partisan differences, this really gets at the importance of having a full range and diversity of women's viewpoints at the table. So we assume and allow for a full diversity of men's perspectives and opinions. We expect men to have different viewpoints. Unfortunately, for so long, we've assumed and expected that women sort of bring the same voice. So if you just bring a few of them to the table, they must represent all of the women in this country. And they don't. Um, and that's certainly true ideologically. So when we only have 13 Republican women at the table of 435 members, that means conservative women in the rest of the country have very little voice um, in what's going on in the U.S. House. Because, again, it's hard to deny that there are differences in their lived experiences. Some will deny it, but any statistic, any study on health and the economy, and we could go down the list, would demonstrate that their life is not the same as their male counterparts. And so... It matters that women can come to the table, bring unique lived experience, and also debate the best ways to incorporate those, those uh, perspectives, those experiences, and to debate how we define problems and, and how we um, come to solutions. One thing that our research has shown in the past is that both Republican and Democratic women are more likely to bring issues of distinct importance and impact on women, family, children, etc., to the table, even though they may very much disagree on what the solution or the particular agenda item needs to be. But they at least are, are bringing the debate to the fore in ways that may have otherwise been ignored. In the past, the women in elected office have been more likely to come together to find solutions. Here's former Representative Susan Molinari again. 
So, you know, you, we talk tribal, you know, right? And you had your Republican Party tribe. I was as big a partisan as anybody, right? And so I had my Republican Party tribe. But then I had my New York tribe. And we would meet once a week, Republicans, Democrats, sometimes House and Senate, to talk about issues that affected New York. Then I had my women's tribe. We would meet once a week in the women's caucus. And so you, you, your committees oh my Lord, your committees were the biggest tribe. If you were on an authorizing committee, I was on transportation, that was it. Republicans, Democrats, we held close together versus appropriators or you know, the budget committee, or whatever. So you had all these places where you intersected with people who came from different areas of the country, who had different political views. I'm a moderate Republican. So, you know, and many times I agreed and would be sort of the point person for the Republicans to go over and say, okay, I've got 50 votes on family and medical leave. How do we work this? How do you, you know, like when we'd have those negotiations and the Republican party leaders respected it and the Democrat party leaders respected it. Um, and so, you know, what, it, once that all broke down to just being Republican and Democrat, those relationships fractured and it became a lot easier to, to not negotiate. It's not just a nice idea to have people from both parties working together. It's vital to actually get things done. Still, former Governor Christine Whitman pointed out that the past is no guarantee of the future. Well, I think to bring it back to the center, to women are very good at reaching across the aisle. I mean, generally when women run for office, they don't do it for a title or perceived power. They do it to solve a problem. And in general, at least it has been the tradition over time. Now, as you get more and more partisan women that this may not be true anymore, um, they were willing to reach across and work out solutions, almost more willing than their male counterparts or oftentimes more willing than their male counterparts. And so that gives me hope when the women, if they are elected, get to the Senate or the House, that they will try, they're there to solve problems. They're there to address these huge issues that we face as a nation between the coronavirus and the racism and all that's going on. Um, they care about the future. They care about the children, whether they're theirs or not. They care about future generations, and I think they're going to want to make a positive difference, and that means they have to reach across the aisle. And that's been true, actually, with this class. There's been a lot of, the women work together. A lot of, if you look at bipartisan legislation, there isn't, almost isn't a piece of bipartisan legislation that doesn't have as major sponsors, either the primary sponsor or co-sponsor is a woman. It's the way it works. It's the way we've done things in the past. It's hard to imagine that candidates aligning themselves with our current president are going to be chomping at the bit to compromise and reach across the aisle. And they might not be. Republican women might win more seats, or they might not. Democrats who won in 2018 might win, or they might not. Either way, this is part of the long march towards greater representation. Someday, I hope, it will no longer be notable that a record number of women are running or are elected especially when that record is still so very shy of parody. Next week, on this season's finale, we're heading back to where it all began to talk with someone who didn't win in 2018, but is back at it again. My mom, Kathy Manning. Get ready for the great state of North Carolina. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Liz Smith and is executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to Edie Allard and Louisa Garbowit. Original intro and outro music by Miles Moran. 
Talk to you next week.